No country has ever prospered that failed to put its own interests first. We will no longer surrender this country or its people to the false song of globalism. New Right Network presents Right Now, the featured podcast of New Right Network. Mobilizing, countering the left, energizing the right. New Right Network, home of the New Right Movement. I'm Garrett Smith with New Right Network, and I'm here with my friend Clarence Henderson. Uh, we are in Greensboro, North Carolina. As you can see here, we have the February 1 statue. Uh, which was dedicated to the Greensboro sit-ins, which occurred in 1960. And Clarence here participated in the Greensboro sit-ins. If you look at that famous picture of the second day, Clarence is the furthest one on the right looking back at the camera. So I'm going to let him talk for a little bit about that experience. And he's also with the Frederick Douglass Foundation of North Carolina. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that as well. So Clarence, thank you for being here. Oh, you're quite well. Today. And so, uh, your experience uh, with this, uh, can you give me a little bit of information about what February 1 was and tell the audience a little bit about what exactly happened there on the first and the second day? Sure. The young man right here, Ezell Blair, who's changed his name to Jabril Gazelle, he and I started out in the first grade together. Okay. And he participated in the first day. They stayed on campus. Right. Uh, my parents couldn't afford me to stay on campus, so I lived off campus, so he came to Bluefoot Library, okay. which was uh, uh, where we gathered together when we didn't have classes, mm -hmm. and he told me what they had done on the first day, sure. and asked me if I would participate, and I told him sure, uh, because it was something that I thought was worthy of it, and he told me that if they served us, uh, he would buy my lunch, and need to say that he never had to buy that lunch. So we left from the campus, Bluefoot Library, which is over here on Market Street, uh, right over there. Right. And we walked downtown, and uh, I've been in Woolworths on a number of occasions, but uh, this day was somewhat different. When you walk into a situation where you don't know how you're going to come out, whether you're going to come out in a prone position, right. a vertical position, whether you're going to come out in handcuffs or going to the morgue, it makes life a little different. So we walked in, and as soon as we sat down, you could almost feel the tension of the occasion that was occurring. Now. For historical purposes, there were two places that were unusual in the Woolworths. Uh, and those two places were one was downstairs where you had two bathrooms, one, one same color and one same white. Uh, and then you had two water fountains, one same color and one same white. And when I was a kid growing up, my mother and I used to go in there and I used to see the water coming out of the fountain and I wondered what the difference was because they both looked the same. Right. And when you went upstairs, everything was the same. You got the same service every place except when you went to the lunch counter, which is over to the right on the right hand side. Uh, and uh, we could purchase food, but we had to purchase it to go. Uh, we paid the same price. And so uh, the whole movement was to be nonviolent. It was to, to, to show America what was going on as far as segregation was concerned. So we actually put Jim Crow on trial. And after 176 days or so, he was found guilty. What happened was is that um, I never ate at the lunch counter. Um, and uh, actually, when spring break came about, uh, a &T students were going home. So Dudley High students, the school that I went to high school, they came in and they took over. And so what happened was that you had uh, 
think it was three people that worked for Woolworths, they were the first three to integrate the lunch counter. But on that, you know, it was like 176 days of people being oppressed, walking into various situations, and I was like a fire attorney. You know, you had, we, we dealt with the KKK, they came in one day, had a bomb break at the close place down. Uh, and you had people calling out people, all kinds of names. You had all kinds of disturbances going on. And at one point in time, it's like, uh, if you look at that street right there, uh, on the right hand side, if you will, uh, it's really uh, outside the rules. But on the left hand side, the rules And you had people on the right hand side that would, would, uh, were protesting what we were doing. And people on the left hand side were for it. And because you couldn't, everybody couldn't get into Woolworth at that particular point in time. So it was a movement of a people. And at one point in time, there was some 500 and some people in that particular location. And so um, they took a break and they uh, uh, went to, uh, they had a meeting, which I didn't attend because I was one of the grassroots type people. Right. Where they, they had several meetings with the mayor trying to resolve the situation they couldn't. And I think what really broke the back of it was that uh, right over here at, at Bennett College, Dr. Willoughby Player was uh, the president over there. And she went into this place called Ellis, Ellis, Ellis Stone and she tore up her credit card and said, I will not share up you anymore until you integrate the lunch counter. So I think it was more economics than anything else because I understand that it cost, uh, um, it cost Woolworth about $200,000, which would be about a million dollars a day. And so uh, what happened was that they finally uh, resolved the fact that they should go ahead and integrate the lunch counter. And, um, you know, leading up to that, I believe in divine uh, intervention. Right. And I was, uh, it was by design that I was there because I was, I didn't, I was not a part of the planning of it, but I was invited up. But when I was born, my father named me after his best friend. Now you had to remember that his best friend was uh, the person he worked for because he was a sharecropper. And of course he was white, but he named me after this white gentleman. So it, it set the tone for me to help bridge the gap between the races. And I've always dealt with that adversity from uh, uh, now, uh, from then until now. Uh, I went to, I left Greensboro, said I'm going to get away from all this stuff. And what happened was is that uh, I was there in New York when the riots broke out. Well, I, after I got out of the military, I came back to A&T in uh, 60, I think it was January 69. And I don't know what, you know what happened in, Jan in, in uh, around March of that, about a, of 69 here on this campus. They had the riots break out here. Okay. So I was in the middle of that because I, as a vet, uh, one of the things that we were trying to do was is, is get peace to, to come about. And so I've always been involved in this kind of situation. I guess you would call me a, a peacemaker uh, to help bridge the gap. And that's what I still do today is to try to let make people aware that there's no difference between the races. As far as it's concerned, there's only one race, and that's the human race. Right. But you have people that are... Um, uh, adhere to thinking uh, they have racism and see racism is a thing you're never going to stop. You can't legislate it because it's in the heart of a person, in the mind of a person. You have a racism perhaps uh, uh, in every race that there is that's on this earth. And so the only thing that the United States can do is put laws in place uh, to prevent that. So uh, the reason why I said there's no racism, Jim Crow is not a law in the books in the United States. And so you have to deal with it on an individual basis as to 
whether or not a person does something that they would de the law would deem to be racist. And so we we keep they brought the situation forward when um, it's not as prevalent as it used to be. As a matter of fact, this. Uh, it's a non-issue as far as I'm concerned because right. nobody's standing over me telling me what I can and cannot do. And so it's up to you uh, uh, that you understand that uh, if you want to be successful in America, you apply yourself to a system, the free market capitalist system, that system doesn't care who owns it. It's like uh, um, the opportunity in America is like a, a uh, glass half full. And what you do is that you put yourself open to that glass half full, which is the opportunity, and whatever comes out belongs to you. And the more people will apply that, the more they will understand that the way you become successful in America is applying that system because it gives you two opportunities, one to succeed and one an opportunity to fail. And you can actually fail your way to success. I've seen it happen so many times. So uh, America has, progressed, has, been, has progressed greatly from the standpoint of in the 60s and even when I was growing up before that, uh, to where we are right now, whereby that people on the outside of this country, except and unless we make it an issue, they don't see racism in America. Because why would they all people all these people want to come to America if we had such a big problem with that? If we listened to what some of our politicians said, then everybody would leave, be leaning to America, going to these other countries that are coming here. And so, uh, the news media has done a, a a a disservice to the community, and they still do a disservice by not publishing and not broadcasting, not communicating the news as it occurs instead of be, a, a, a becoming an opinion because an opinion, everybody has one. It's just like your nose, everybody has an opinion. But it's like, as a, 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 you may have to look this up, but there was a, uh, when I was growing up, it was a, a TV show came on called Dragnet. And Dragnet, the star was a guy named Jack Webb. And he would go and, and uh, uh, try to find out what had happened with the crime. And uh, most of the time they would have one, he'd be talking to a woman, and the woman just talking, talking, talking. He said, ma'am, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's what I want. And so what we need to do is have the facts now, what's going on right now, and America will be a greater country. Um, in my mind, a lot of destruction that's going on is from within this country based upon people that are still dealing with race as opposed to dealing with what it means to have the great opportunity in America that we have. So. Uh, I think about a couple of years ago, I became the president of the Frederick Douglass Foundation because I saw an opportunity to make people aware through that, that, that uh, uh, foundation, the Frederick Douglass Foundation, to, to, to uh, bring some of the issues that in the black community that they might deal with to the forefront of uh, our, our, uh, our government uh, across the United States because I sit on the Central, Mid Central Committee for the GOP and one of the things we do is we bring issues to uh, them in reference to what's happening in, in the community about uh, how we can improve as far as uh, jobs concerned, concerned, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, school choice, all these things. Uh, one of the big concerns is about what is happening to the black community as far as abortion is concerned. And so we're a grassroots Christian organization that uh, stands for what Frederick Douglass stood for. Now he was an abolitionist. and. Uh, came out of slavery and became a very rich individual. He was more well known than even Abraham Lincoln. They took more pictures of him than they did Abraham Lincoln. As a matter of fact, he advised Abraham Lincoln on President Lincoln on um, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, speech that he did. And so we have this great history. As a matter of fact, 
I would like him as, as to be the father of the civil rights movement because he was before Martin's time and before a lot of people's time. And so we, uh, my vision is that we would have Frederick Douglass Foundations all over the United States. We started out in 2009, where if we had a thousand people in each uh, state, that's 50,000 strong, uh, making sure that everyone has the same rights as everyone else with defending freedom, making sure that we do not go back to uh, uh, King George III and, and, and what he thought, because we have, we have president, we don't have a king. And so uh, it's something that I, I've taken over to make sure that uh, the, uh, the fight continues because freedom is not free. It's a, a, a price has to be paid. It must be paid up front, it must be paid in full. And so we always, on a daily basis, we got to the point that we have to basically defend our freedom. But the only way you can do that is to know what your rights are. You need to have working knowledge of what the uh, Declaration of Independence is, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. If you are a citizen of this country and you don't know the history of America, basically you're a citizen in name only because you don't know what the opportunity offers and until you know that you're always going to probably be one of those that complain and say that this, this is a terrible country but uh, this country is uh, uh, is known across the world for what it has done and how uh, we have operated according to mankind so we see this great progress that the story needs to be told and so I go across America continuously telling the story and now before I became the president of the Frederick Douglass Foundation I was the uh, chairman for the Martin Luther King's Commission for the state of North Carolina, appointed by Governor McCord, who I'd never met until after this, this occurred. So uh, I've always been pushed to the forefront of, of doing these kind of things. You know, I, my belief as a Christian is that everybody has an assignment while they're here on this earth. And mine just happened to be one to be at, at the forefront uh, to stand up for what, uh, 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 for mankind. So the bottom line is that is. Uh, what kind of history will each, 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 any of us have? What kind of legacy will we leave? As it says in Braveheart, every man dies, but not every man lives. And so uh, when a person becomes sick and tired of that situation, then the question is, what will you do about it? Will you do something to change it? Or will you just be like sit on the sideline like the thinker and, uh, and think about what's going on as opposed to opposing? Because see, the lives of great men remind us that we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time and I always ask people where are your footprints are you like a walking shadow a pool player that walks and struts this out on the stage and then is heard no more because to me the greatest sentence in either one of those uh, Childs of Freedom the Declaration of Independence the Constitution the Bill of Rights is that second sentence which says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they have been endowed by their creator with certain and other rights and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that means no man, no woman, no entity has a has a right to take away those God-given rights. And so we need to understand that the Constitution does not give us rights, it recognizes our rights. And so when we begin to see that, then we begin to understand how great this country is, even with all of the faults it had, because our slavery was terrible. Uh, but we came up out of slavery, which proved that uh, uh, America was changing. We came out of Jim Crow, which proved that change. So now, instead of us getting buried in history, you have to look back to make sure you don't make the same mistake again. Uh, what you did right, that uh, uh, you continue to do it. But you have to realize and reckon the fact that we are here on this earth that they have a chance to make a difference in one way or the other.
Well, it's very, very good and mm -hmm. very insightful. And, you know, Frederick Douglass uh, is one of my personal role models, honestly. Mm -hmm. He's one of my favorite historical heroes. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind me asking, is he your uh, historical role model if you had to pick one? I would have to pick one, yeah. He would be uh, my historical role model uh, because um, uh, of the great things he did. And he, you know, adversity can be great if you understand it because it will cause you to stand up if you have the courage to do that. Now, my real hero was my father. My father only had a third grade education. And when he left the cotton fields in, in South Carolina, I was about three or four years of age, he came to this city right here, Greensboro, and he never worked anybody but himself. Now, how did he do that? He had a gift that God had given him. He was a great mechanic. And during that time, before you had all the bells and whistles and all these technology you have on the car, if you heard it run, he could repair it, he could fix it. Wow. So he had, a, he, he had his own garage, and sometimes it may be just uh, one stall that he'd be renting out for somebody. And the car, a lot of the car dealerships in Greensboro used to be downtown on, on Elm Street, where the, uh, um, uh, in that area uh, there about where Woolworths is. And I used to see the dealerships bring cars to him that their guys couldn't repair that had the piece of tape on the wall. And so I've seen him actually tear a motor down and put it back together uh, just by, uh, his, his, he, he was great with his hands. And so he understood that. And I used to go around with him sometimes and he'd go pick up parts. And he used to always look inside of the box at the part. And I, my dad was not very talkative. And one day this guy brought him the box of parts and he pulled it out. My dad said, that's the wrong part. He said, well, no it isn't because it says on the box it has the right number. He says, go back and get another box. And he did, and he pulled it out and he said, that's the right part. So it proved to me that if you have the knowledge and wisdom, you can do basically anything that you desire to do uh, within certain limits. And so um, for me, he was my hero, but here's what, one of the things that happened. Um, we didn't discuss politics uh, in our house. So I, I dropped out of A&T, went to New York, that's a whole nother story, I got drafted and went in the military and spent uh, the last 16 months of my military service in Fort Rook, Alabama, when George Wallace was the governor down there. So that's, wow. that'll take the story oh, yeah. out about itself. <laughs> but anyway, I came back here and went to ENT and got my degree in business administration. So right after that, my dad and I were sitting at the kitchen table. And I started espousing and talking about the Democratic Party because I was a Democrat. And I was Democrat all the way up to actually George Bush the second. And what he said to me, I said, the Democratic Party this, and the Democratic Party that. My dad said that very calmly, looked at me straight in the eye. He said, son, you don't know your history. I said, what do you mean? He says, you don't know what the Republican Party has done as far as blacks are concerned. Well, it took me 25 plus years before I actually went and investigated. So a lot of people are not really investigating and seeing who's done what and any, um, we don't vet our uh, people that are running for office enough to find out all about them. And so when I started to look, I st and I started looking at the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, what uh, uh, Republicans have done as far as uh, uh, the black community is concerned, and also when it comes to women's rights, well, the Republican Party fought a long time to get those rights in. The Democratic Party was fighting against it. And so we have the Democratic Party starting in 1964 when Lyndon, Bean, Lyndon Baines Johnson um, signed that uh, uh, um, civil rights movement 
And his strategy was, he says, I'll have them voting Democrat for the next 200 years. And he used the N-word to say that. And it, and it looks like it's, it has, it is on the way of becoming true because when you got 90 plus percent of the people voting on one side of the aisle of the Democratic Party, they're taking for granted and they do basically anything they want to with them. So uh, I want to make people aware of what both parties stand for to see which side you want to vote for because you can vote for any side you choose, but are they actually representing you? And so that's what I'm doing now is fighting for the cause uh, of a common man out here to make sure that everybody gets the same opportunity that America offers. Right, and that's and that's good, and it sounds like God has really ordained that yes. upon you, and I know mm -hmm. that you feel mm -hmm. positive that mm -hmm. he has. And speaking of Lyndon Johnson and the, the myth of the party switch, what would you say uh, to the audience who believes that uh, today's Republicans were yesterday's Democrats and that today's Republicans are the bad guys and that the Democrats are now the enlightened individuals of civil rights. What would you have to say to people well, who believe that? History doesn't tell me that. I, that's a myth. It, 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 and if you go back, I, I'll go back just a short ways. When, when uh, uh, John Kennedy was president of the United States, he wrote this book, uh, uh, I don't know whether he was president at that time or he was senator, he wrote this book called Profiles of Courage. And a lot of people admire him and he did a lot of great things, but that the subject matter was of the, the courage of the senators, the white senators of the South who were segregationists. So uh, it was his brother that actually pushed him to do something about what was going on back during that time when uh, the civil rights movement was at, at the peak. And so what you have is a Democratic Party that has painted over and covered over who they really are. They've always been uh, for segregation uh, and, and for oppression, oppression for a certain group of people because actually the Republican Party through Abraham Lincoln was started out as a, the, the Freedom Party, which was uh, a part of it was to make sure that all of mankind had the same, uh, was recognized for having the same rights. So if you go back to, to that very issue alone and then when uh, uh, Lincoln was shot and uh, Jackson took over, then he went right back to what they were doing before. So all those laws were erased. As a matter of fact, one point in time, we had quite a few blacks that had, were, were held uh, as Congress and senators in these United States that were Republicans. And either they were uh, run out of town or they were killed and uh, the, the, the white Republicans that were in favor of them, they did the same thing to them. So when we go back and look at that in history, there's a book called um, Redemption. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book, but he talks about those very things, about how they, the Democratic Party from started the KKK, how they use that as leverage to hold uh, blacks down. And so also when we start talking about the Second Amendment, that was one of the ways that blacks were able to defend themselves because they were able to have weapons. Now they're trying to take weapons away from people that want the, that, that, are, that are not doing anything illegal, and so that should not be. Right. And you know, like you said, uh, when Andrew Johnson took mm, over Andrew the Johnson, presidency, yeah. uh, right after Lincoln's assassination, you know, Reconstruction, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people feel that Reconstruction in the South would have went so much better than mm -hmm. it did if Lincoln would not right. have been assassinated. And, that's one why he was assassinated. and Johnson, when Johnson took over, it uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it caused uh, the Klan mm -hmm. to gain a lot of power mm -hmm. in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of white supremacist mm -hmm. uh, Democrats became, you know, back mm -hmm. in power, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and you saw that uh, up until what, at least the 1960s, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, 
uh, George Wallace, uh, you mentioned Wallace a little bit ago. Um, do you remember when George Wallace stood at the schoolhouse door and oh, said, yeah. said oh, what yeah. was his famous saying? Uh, I can't remember what his name was. It was seg segregation. Oh, now segregation forever. Yeah. Right, right. Segregation then, that's segregation forever. Now, the irony of it is that um, when I was at Fort Rooker, they had these little cars about the size of a business card. And they were passing them around. Uh, I don't know how some of the guys got a hold of them. And, and, and the card said, vote for uh, George Wallace, not for Lyndon Baines Johnson, that end lover. Really? That's the kind of things that I dealt with when I was there. Now, when I was there, also, we'd go downtown and we used to go down to the club, and if people got rowdy and, you know, the club, the club was in the black neighborhood, what they would do is that you had two policemen out there with on foot. They would hold you until uh, the, the cops and the, and, the white, and, and the white cops and the cops would come by and pick them up. So uh, we've always had these challenges, but if you look at history, you see how we have progressed because my middle brother, I'm not, not my middle brother, my old brother, oldest brother was a policeman here in the state of in, 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 uh, Greensboro for eight, between 17 and 19 years and he got every I and crossed every T. So when they talk about they want to label uh, um, policemen as being uh, prejudiced or racist or uh, oppressive people, uh, you, can find, you can look at any organization, any professional organization, you find the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the only way you know that is when they do something to call that calls them to be called out. And so uh, I know my brother did everything over and above what the law said he was supposed to do. And so if, if we didn't have the police, you and the three of us couldn't be standing out here now. Right. Uh, unless we had our weapons on our side and probably had to have them in our hand to protect ourselves. So I appreciate what the policemen do. Uh, and every time I get a chance to let them know that I appreciate them being out on the front line, then I let them know that uh, uh, and I pray for them and hope they uh, continue to do a great job. Right. Well, and that's very good. And uh, we thank you, uh, right. you know, for your service to the civil rights movement, and you know, uh, in 1960, and you know, throughout, and now into the Frederick Douglass Foundation. If the audience wants uh, to do more research on you and maybe uh, figure out more what you do with the Frederick Douglass Foundation, what would be a good place to go to online to fit, uh, to find you? They can go to www.bbcom.clarencehenderson. Okay. And that's where they can find me. Okay. Or, or just look up the name. Sure. And right. you see all kind of things that because I'm always out front. Awesome. At this particular point in time. Okay. I go across the country now doing speeches uh, for individuals that, um, uh, organizations that want to find out who, America, where do we go from here? We have a great opportunity at this particular point in time. Uh, however, the Trojan horse is no longer outside of our borders, it's on the inside, even in our congressional halls. We have people there that want to destroy and dismantle the, the Constitution. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party is using the same technique they used then, uh, illegality or whatever they can use to, uh, um, to get rid of our president, for example, when let the guy serve his term. Unless you have something illegal, they, things they need to be concerned about is going to this country, they're not really concerned about those things. And so uh, let our system do its work, what it's, supposed, what it's supposed to be done, because the Constitution is a, is, a, um, is a great instrument. Find another Constitution across the world that has been in place as long as the United States. And the United States is one of the younger, younger countries that, that we have out here. 
but that constitution has served us greatly. But you have to know and have working or knowledge of what the constitution says. Right. And uh, I like what you said about the people here in America who just don't understand and they mm -hmm. want to dismantle what we've got. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard uh, for some people to grasp. Mm -hmm. But like Clarence said, there are, believe it or not, people in America who do not want America in the world. Mm -hmm. And Abraham Lincoln, when he was young, one of his first prominent speeches, uh, it was known as the Lyceum Address. A lot of people don't even mm -hmm. know about it. And he asks a question uh, to the audience that he's talking to, and he says, should we expect some transatlantic military giant to cross the ocean and step us with a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure in the world at their disposal except our own, and Napoleon Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or leave a track in the Blue Ridge given the trial of a thousand years. So at what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer that if it ever reaches us, it has to spring up from amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. Now, you didn't learn that in school. I did not. I learned that. And that's one of the atrocities of our school system. They are trying to change the history, trying to rewrite history. And so like you were talking about before, about that myth about uh, the Republican Party used to be the Democratic Party. And because people have not studied the history of America, then they don't know what America stands for. And one of the reasons why our soldiers have gone out to battle is because they knew what they were fighting for, for the freedom of America, for the people that they left behind to have the freedom that uh, they knew that was, uh, that, that, that was here in this country. So uh, that's why we need school choice. Worry right. about it, the real history of America is taught and not covered over because see, the Democratic Party is after one thing and, that, and that's control. They are not concerned about those people there on the border, except for their votes. That's what they're concerned about. If they were so concerned about, they talk about the babies, why do we have, uh, four, we got 40 million blacks in America right now. We have had 20 million aborted, and through Planned Parenthood, which you won't find a Democrat, I have yet to find one publicly, say that he is for pro-life. And so it's about control. So they feel like they have the, 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 the black community under control. Now they're going after the Hispanics. And that's what they're using as leverage. The Democratic Party has a history of always having to have somebody that they uh, can call them victims. We see, I'm not a victim. I'm not a survivor. I'm an overcome by the blood of the land and where my testimony. And my testimony is I can do all things to fight to strengthen me. And so therefore, if we would uh, take a look at each individual having the same opportunity, we'll see things a whole lot different and stop looking at race uh, and playing that card as, a, as an excuse. So if you, unless you have some physical limitation, if you have been in the same position over a number of years, let's say 10 or 20 years or whatever it is, and it hasn't changed, then you need to reflect and look at your life to see uh, 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 what is happening because see when I first came to this institution I, my major was biology knew nothing about biology carrying nothing about but one of my best friends uh, was a biology major and so I, I decided that to be, become a uh, biology major did nothing in that but now when I came back I understood about business so I went into business and graduated in less than three years from this institution going a year around and, 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 and working a full-time job and spent almost 30 years of being in the business with myself in the financial services, doing mortgages and investments, things like that. So the things that people need to know about this country is how do you process your way in life? 
uh, even how to balance a checkbook, uh, how to go back to cursive. So when you sign your name, you don't print it, you sign it. Uh, understanding that businesses drive this country. If we don't have the businesses then to hire people, then where do we go from here? And stop being so concerned about what the other guys make and these corporations are making. Be concerned about what you're making. Because when uh, the problem with minimum wages is that they become maximum wages. And when people talk about a living wage, what is that? It's different for everybody. There are jobs out here that are going on that start you out at fifty, seventy-five, dollars $100,000 a year. But you have to be trained to be able to do that. So what would you be willing to do? You can go to uh, one of these community colleges for a little or nothing in a year, uh, maybe two, uh, uh, come out with a, a, a trade that could pay you a lot of money, such as a, a plumber, electrician, uh, those kind of things. That, that Those jobs cannot be farmed out to another country. So we have a lot of people going to, 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 to four institutions that wind up uh, because they chose some degree or whatever that uh, they may owe that money all the way to uh, from, from the point they come out of the university until they're 65 years older. And so we have to do a better job in our education system and the education system is not going to change except to have competition. That's one of the places that our kid, uh, we held captive in this country is through public schools. Uh, one of the things that you hear them saying all the time is that the uh, private schools or the school choice takes away, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, uh, the public schools money. Uh, but that's not their money, that's the taxpayers money. And so we need to understand uh, the money should follow success. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, thank you, uh, and we want to thank you uh, for your time mm -hmm. here. And uh, if you could say just one message to the audience and mm -hmm. to future generations mm -hmm. of America mm -hmm. to wrap up, what would you what would you say? Uh, it is time for all patriots uh, to come to the aid of their country, because if you intend to spend your life in this country, you should try to make it as good as it can be. Because every, uh, I see the world as a museum. And there's a blank mural on the wall for every individual. And it has your date of death, I mean your date of birth, but it doesn't have your date of death. That in between is a dash. And what you put in that dash is what counts as to whether you leave this country better, uh, this world a better place when you leave, or a worse place. And so uh, we have this, it's one opportunity, life goes around only one time, and the question is, when it's all said and done, where, what will they paint, uh, what will they say on your tombstone? In the Bible it says, Methuselah lived longer than anybody else, but I don't see anything he did. So it's not how long you live, it's what you do. And see, we all have defining moments, those are not in you. Moments, the, the, those moments don't define you, it's what you do in those moments. That's what defines you because every person is called out at some point in time to do something to make a difference, even if it's just to be a witness. And so what will you do? So uh, in America what we have is that far too many people have cut their teeth on the, they've cut their teeth on the pleasure of freedom but they have not uh, cut their teeth on the truth or the courage that's required for freedom's sake. So for those that have, do not understand what is required for freedom's sake, they need to find out what people like myself did to carry them over to where we are right now, where you and I can stand here 
black and white and have a conversation with each other and uh, it not be anything unusual. And that's the way America is. We have to become colorblind when it comes to judging people. Dr. King said not to judge a person by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Because, see, you have to become a drum major for freedom in this country. And until we do that, the question is how much do you, again, I said, said I can't overemphasize it, is how much do you value your freedom? Ronald Reagan said we're never uh, more than a decade away from losing our freedom. In my mind, uh, a little over eight years ago, uh, we were eight years into it until we had the new election when the Republican Party came back in. So we have a chance now to keep that same party in, and, and, and they have some imperfect purpose in that party, but you have to do a comparative analysis to compare one against another and to find out. For example, uh, I've done invocations for President on uh, five or six different occasions. I've done it for Mike Pence on five or six different occasions. I challenge anybody to find a, a, a uh, law that the president has put in place as racist. That's how you determine it's about policies, not about the person, but the policies they put in place because they're there to serve the people, to make sure that uh, the people have all had the same opportunities about we the people and not they the government. And the government works for us and not the opposite way, but if you, you hear the average politician, they'll, they'll talk like that we work for them. And so you, we've got 535 people telling over 320 million people what they should or should not do. So everybody has to take an active part in the PTA, the local government, uh, 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 the council, uh, city council, the, what do you call them, the, um, the, the representatives in, in, of the county right. in order to uh, make sure things are going right in their country, in, in their state, in their, in their county. So right. we all have a job to do. Right. Well, that's the, a good the, message. The county commissioners. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a very good message. And again, I thank you, Clarence, for I'm being here today. This is Clarence Henderson of the Greensboro Sit-Ins in 1960 and the Frederick Douglass Foundation of North Carolina. You can check them out online. I'm Garrett Smith with New Right Network. Uh, be sure to check out my articles and future videos. And thank you for watching. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to New Right Network, mobilizing, countering, energizing. Online at newrightnetwork.com. <laughs>